I'm going to ask that you stand as we read our text for today. It is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. James, the brother of Jesus, writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or, you, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one law, giver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Lord God, would you cause this word to be living and active in our hearts, in our ears, in our minds, in our actions today? Lord, we don't want to just hear words about you, but we want to act upon them. So Lord, I pray that our listening this morning would translate into action for your glory, for our good and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Well, we live in a world full of quarrels and conflicts. It's not only on the news, but unfortunately it describes far too many of our personal relationships. And our text today addresses two main questions related to the many quarrels and the many conflicts among us. It asks these two questions. Where do quarrels and conflicts originate? And how do Christians de-escalate? Or de-escalate is a, is a fancy word. It's a common word. It's a cultural word right now to say, how do we combat conflict? How do we work towards conflict resolution? And so two questions that James is addressing here in our text is this core question. He, he, he asks it right away in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Where do quarrels and conflicts originate? Where do they come from? And then secondly, how can I, as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, as as a disciple or apprentice of Jesus, how can I de-escalate conflict? If conflicts are prevalent in the world and in my own relationships, what is my role? How How do I contribute and how do I combat conflicts? And James gives us direct answers to these two questions. The only question is whether or not we're willing to accept his answers. James doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't doesn't like color up our conflicts. He comes straight at it. 
And so the question for us is, are we willing to take God's word as authoritative this morning and to admit that we are the problem? First question, where do quarrels and conflicts originate? He deals with this in verses 1 through 4, and and the answer is that they come from internal passions which result in worldly reactions. Look at what James says here. Verse 1, the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why do you have conflict in your relationships? Why is the world at war with itself, with each other? Why do nations war against a nation? Why does a neighbor war against a neighbor? Why within your family have you had so much conflict this last year? Oh, is that just my family? Why within the closest relationships in this last year have you realized there's a lot of difference and that difference can result in a lot of conflict so awkward that I don't even know if I want to go to my parents' house for the weekend. I'm not saying that. I'm identifying that in some of you. So awkward that I I don't know if I want to see my siblings. So awkward that I don't know if I want to bring up that question. So awkward that I hope that this isn't discussed. So awkward that, that I open up my garage, I go into it, and I shut it before I have to interact with my neighbor. Because I'm, I'm sick of these quarrels and these conflicts, and where do they come from? James is telling us, he answers, he asks the question, where do these come from? And he says right in verse 1, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You, adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Not a very nice intro, right James? Your passions. What he does is take the finger that's perpetually pointing outward and he turns it inward. Now, isn't this human nature? When we're involved in conflict, when we have quarrels, when we have fights, we're generally thinking, if only the other people would see it my way. They're foolish. They're deceived. They're twisted. They're, they, 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 they don't know the facts. They haven't read this article. They haven't looked at this blog. They haven't listened to this podcast. If only I could fix them. That's what we do. It's what the culture does. That's what the world does. And James here is taking this finger that's pointing outward at other people, at other systems, at other governments, at other other religions, and he turns it directly on you and on me. See, this isn't to negate the fact that it takes two to tango, right? I mean, it takes two to quarrel and to fight. Yesterday, I was up on my roof. My wife is out of town this weekend, and so I have all three kids, um, and I love time with my kids, but I was trying to get some yard work done yesterday because it was a beautifully sunny and amazing day, and there's some desperate work that needs to be done around our yard because I didn't want to have quarrel and conflicts with my neighbors by the state of my yard. I don't want them to be perpetually frustrated and annoyed with me as their neighbor because our yard is in disarray. And so I was up on the roof doing some work, cleaning some things off, and I just hear screaming and yelling from the ground. Oakley, that's mine! Give it back! Oakley, you can't have that! And I come to the edge of the roof, and I look down, and one of my children... Oakley, my four-year-old, she has a 99-cent 
pool noodle, and she's holding it. And my other kid is furious about this because that 99-cent pool noodle is worth everything in this moment. This fight, this conflict, this quarrel busts out so loud that I can hear it. Our entire neighborhood can hear it. And it takes two to tango, right? I mean, she took the thing. She was thinking about herself, her own passions. I see this 99-cent foam pool noodle, and I want it. And the other kid said, I don't want you to have that. It's mine, or at least in this moment, I think it ought to be mine, even though we tell our kids all the time when we buy stuff. We share all of our things. What's ours is yours. What's yours is ours. We are a family. We are a community. There, there's some things that you can have unique um, oversight of, but at the end of the day, we share everything. But in this moment, there was this, this conflict that arose because there was one possession that they each wanted. There was this internal passion, this internal desire, which was warring within them, and they wanted it. And so, yes, it takes two to tango. Yes, there's, there's things in the world and there's things in other people and there's things in other religions and other cultural systems and other ways of doing life that ought to be addressed. But James is trying to instruct the church, God's people here, to be very careful not to assume that our conflicts are because of somebody else's failures or somebody else's shortfalls, or somebody else's inability to see things the way that we know are wise and right and true. James turns the finger and he points it squarely on us. It's so interesting. What causes quarrels and fights among you? James is living in the first century in Jerusalem. He's pastoring the house churches in Jerusalem, which are under persecution from the Roman government. Real persecution, like physical danger, people being martyred, people losing their lives for practicing their faith. And James doesn't say that the fights and the quarrels are because of the Roman government. He doesn't say that the fights and the quarrels are because of the pagan godless people that are out in the culture. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you in the church and also you as you live life in this culture? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? When you are in conflict, when you sense conflict, when you perceive conflict, the first thing that James is telling us to do is to search inward. What passions are at war within me? What internal passions, internal desires do I have that are causing me to get angry, that are causing me to hold my ground, that are, that are not allowing me to hear somebody else and take somebody else's perspective? He doesn't call us to blame shift. He calls us to take the blame, to own up to our issues, to know what our issues are, what's going on inside of me. And this isn't a new te teaching that comes from James. Remember, James is the younger brother of Jesus. I think James here is just keeping in step with what he's heard from Jesus, what he's been taught from Jesus. Let's look at where I think James is getting some of this from. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had previously taught. He says, You have heard that it is said that to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. 
See, Jesus himself is teaching, and it's similar. If you go back to James, James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. I don't think James is addressing actual murder in the church in Jerusalem. I don't think he's accusing the church members of actually murdering one another. There was murder happening in this culture. There was murder happening in this culture. Christians were losing their lives because of the Roman government, and there was oppression, there was, there was serious persecution. But remember, James is addressing this to the church, and he's saying there's fights and there's quarrels among you, whether that's in the local church or whether that's in your church family, whether that's within your, your extended family. There's fights and quarrels among you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Again, I don't think James is accusing this church of actually committing the sin of murder. I think he's getting back into Jesus' teaching. So much of James actually mirrors the Sermon on the Mount. James talks about wisdom. He talks about meekness. James talks about putting your faith in action. That's what the Sermon on the Mount does. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Jesus here teaches us not to be angry. Because our anger is what produces murder and our judgment of others is what produces murder. And even if you don't go the, through the, with the physical act of taking somebody else's life, that's birthed out of this internal passion which causes worldly reaction. And Jesus teaches that even saying you fool to another person, slandering them, tearing down their reputation, is, it's the root of sin. It's, it's the root of hatred that leads to murder. And he says you're liable to judgment as a result. James isn't making up a new teaching here. He's following in the ways of Jesus. And he's teaching Christians to search our own hearts. Not to point the finger at others, but to turn the finger inward. And then remember, Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. He says, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But you do not notice the log that is in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. Then there is a log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of the eye of your brothers. See, Jesus, before James, was warning us that the the fallen human heart, the fallen human mind, the way that we are now made up is to to point the finger at others and to say, I see all your faults, I see all your wrongs, I see all your errors, and let me just clear them up for you. And if I can clear them up for you, you and I will get along better. These quarrels, these disagreements, these fights, these different perspectives, they'll be cleared up if you come my way. Right? Isn't that how you feel? That's not biblical. That's fleshly. That's worldly. As James said last week, that's demonic. That's the world's way of wisdom and the world's way of living is trying to get other people to see things our way. The godly way of living is to search our own hearts, to understand, as James says, what is at war within me? What passions are competing? And so the first thing I want you to do in a practical sense this morning is to ask this question. What internal passions of yours tend to result in worldly reactions? 
Spend some time asking yourself that question this week and making a list. What internal passions, what things do you, and, and these could be good things. They can be godly values and good things, but what things do you, do you, do you desire and you have a passion for that, that leads you to worldly reactions of hatred, of argumentativeness, of, of trying to tear somebody else down, of trying to defame somebody else, of speaking slander towards somebody else, or malice? What in you causes you to get angry and have an opposition mindset towards others? That's what James is getting at. So ask yourself this question this week. What internal passions of mine tend to result in worldly reactions? Here's a few common ones for the average American, probably human, but it's unique temptation in America, I think. Money, sex, and power. There's been books written. Richard Foster wrote a book called Money, Sex, and Power. The allure of our flesh. Maybe for you it's not money, sex, and power. Maybe it's freedom, autonomy, and flexibility. I'm an American. I'm free. Don't take my freedoms from me. How dare you? I'm an American. I'm, a, I'm autonomous. Or flexibility. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. Maybe those don't check the box for you. How about this one? Comfort. Control. Convenience. Isn't this the air of the culture that we breathe? The air in the culture that we live in? Money, sex, and power, freedom, autonomy, and flexibility, comfort, control, and convenience? Those are just a few to get your mind jogged on asking this question. What internal passions? And again, those things aren't necessarily bad, right? Money can be a good gift from God, but has it become an ultimate thing where, where it, when it's threatened to be taken away, you respond worldly. Sex, a great gift from God, but has it become an ultimate thing where it's threatened to be taken away or you're not able to get it, then it becomes this controlling thing and you have worldly reactions. Power. We talked about meekness last week. James called us last week in the passage before this one to be meek. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power, but we're called to use our power, keep it under control, and use it for the good of others. So power is not bad, but, but if it's threatened to be taken from you, if, there, if there's an outlook that I'm going to lose a powerful position, do you start to kick and scream? Freedom, if that's threatened to be taken away, how do you respond? Autonomy, flexibility, comfort. If there's the threat of you losing your comforts or you losing your conveniences, how do you respond? That's what James is getting at here. And once we've recognized and owned up to the fact that most of our problems are generated from our own selfish passions, then we can learn how to de-escalate. See, that's where it starts, Christian. Whenever you're in a conflict, you need to know, whenever I'm in a conflict, I need to know that my first job, your first job, is to look inward. What, what's going on in my soul that causes me to want to respond to that person in this way? What internal passions are at war within me? Do I have covetousness? As James says in verse 2. Remember, this comes out of chapter 3 where he says, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. What's going on in me? Why are we in conflict? And what is my role? And how can I own my role? That's step number one. For us to 
deal with conflict in our lives personally or corporately as a church is to search inward. God, search me and know me. Reveal to me the things in me that are broken and need their ultimate healing and satisfaction and answer in you because I'm trying to find it in other people or things and I think that's why we're in conflict. All right, so that's step number one. Once we do that, once we understand where conflict originates, that it originates within me, not within you, within me, it originates in you, not in them, not the person that you want to change their mind. The conflict originates in you. What's your role in the conflict? Now that we've identified that, we can move into the next question. How do Christians de-escalate? Or how do Christians work towards conflict resolution in your marriage, in your friend groups, with your family, with your neighbors, in your church, with people that have different pers- perspectives and opinions than you? This last year has been ripe and full of people with different perspectives and opinions than you, right? And because their perspectives and opinions are different than yours, you think that you need to get them to see your perspectives and opinions, right? You have a perspective or an opinion, and you think it's right. So therefore, if I could get other people, and this is true for me too. But James starts saying, it originates with you, deal with yourself, and now that you know that you are a major contributing factor to the, to the problem, here's how you live. Here's how you now de-escalate. He gives us nine tactics for de-escalation. Nine. I'm going to go quickly through them. Nine tactics for de-escalation. And a word of warning. Not one of them has to do with changing somebody else's perspective. They all have to do with personal transformation. They all have to do with you. All of your problems, the solution to deal with, dealing with them, they all have to do with you dealing with you. All of my problems, all of my conflicts, the solution isn't to change you. The solution is to change me. Here's, here's where James goes with this, how to de-escalate. The first one is, is kind of an overarching thought process that leads into the next eight. So the first tactic is to remember our status. And I say our because this is a corporate, this is a communal thing. In America, oftentimes we read the Bible and we see the you and we think it's talking to me, that this is all on me, this is all on my back, this is all on my shoulders, I have to do this. But it's written to a community. It's written to a people and this is only worked out in community with brothers and sisters in the faith who we can hold one another accountable to and who we can encourage one another with the words of truth. So the first one is to remember our status. Let me start in verse 4. After identifying the problem, James turns the finger inward on yourself. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's what James is doing. Once we've identified that, that we are the problem, now how we de-escalate situations and how we work towards conflict resolution, first step is for us to remember our status. To remember that if we are in Christ, we are chosen by God, we are holy, righteous, and redeemed, and we are no longer defined by the world. 
we are no longer defined by the flesh that is at war within us, by these lingering feelings of desire, of internal passions, of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Though we taste that in our life, though we, we sense our flesh rearing up in this way, we're no longer defined by that. We are defined by righteousness in holiness, we are blameless. We have been bought with a price. We are new. You are, you are a son or a daughter of God. And God is jealous for you. I love this imagery that James is taking out here. He says, you adulterous people, right? In verse 4. That seems kind of, kind of offensive, right? For your pastor to call you an adulterer. For your pastor to say, remember James here is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem in the first century, and he's saying, this is why fights and quarrels are among you because of your own internal passions, and because of it, you're an adulterer, you're an adulterous people. And most of the church empties out because they don't like to be accused like that. But here's the glory in this. James is reminding the church that because they're in Christ, and because they fail, we are adulterers, He's, he's, he's calling back to this Old Testament picture of God being jealous for his bride, for his adulterous bride. Look at, he says, or do you suppose that it is no purpose when the scripture says, and there's actually not a specific quote, there's no Old Testament verse, chapter verse, where James is drawing from. I think he's drawing from multiple imageries in the Old Testament about God being jealous for his bride, jealous for his people James says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God cares about our fidelity. He wants us to be faithful to him. And when we struggle with infidelity, he is jealous over us and he comes for us and he cares for us. And so James here is saying, you adulterous people, but we're an adulterous people who have a jealous God, a God who is zealous for relationship with us, a God who sent his son Jesus to the cross to secure this relationship with us. Verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. See, James isn't crucifying the church for the passions that war within them and for their fights and their quarrels. He's reminding them Jesus was crucified for you. Where you are an adulterous people, where you continue to struggle with your flesh and these quarrels and these conflicts and these fights burst out. Yes, that is a, that is a sign of your flesh in this former way of adultery, this former way of turning your back on God, this former way of, of wedding yourself to the world and the things of the world. But be reminded that God gives more grace, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so we come to God remembering our status that it's not because of my righteousness, it's not because of my ability to kill the passions that are, war, at, our, that are at war within me, it's not by my ability to figure out all the good conflict resolution tactics, it's not in my ability to be able to point the finger inward and actually know what's going on in my heart and my head at all times, it's because of Jesus. God is jealous for me, he gives me more grace and he, he wraps me up and he brings me close and he makes me new and now as I come to him as a sign of humility he gives more grace and more grace and more grace 
He showers me with more undeserved favor and more undeserved favor and more undeserved favor. And once we know that, once we remember our status, then we can actually get to work. So much of the book of James is about us partnering with God to produce on the world, in the world, on earth, Christ-likeness. And so remember your status. That's number one. Number two, it's in verse seven. Number, number two and three. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so I, I tied these two together. They're two separate things, but they're tied together in verse 7. Coming out of, we remember our status. Once we remember our status and we know whose we are, we know who we are, we now can submit ourselves to God. You are not your own authority. The passions at war within you are not your authority. You have an authority. His name is Jesus He deserves you bowing your knee in humble submission to him. James says, submit to God. That's your ultimate submission. And so when you're in conflict with others, oftentimes there's this unspoken authority or this this passion at war within you. It's working like an authority in your life. Say, no, you really need to work for this. You really need to want this. This This is something that you need. And James is saying that, A Christian who de-escalates or combats conflict is one who continually submits to God as the authority. Not the cravings of my flesh, not the selfish ambitions of my soul like he identified in chapter 3, not the bitter jealousy, not the covetousness of my heart, no God. And then this is is like one side of the coin to the second part of verse 7 where it says resist the devil. The best way to, how, how do I resist the devil? Well, the best way to resist the devil is to submit to Christ. To be humble, to humble yourself before King Jesus and, and to say, I, in, I am in submission to you, King Jesus. You are my Lord. You are my authority. I bow to no other. Not to my own passions, not to my own flesh, not to the world's governments. I bow to you. And in doing that, you begin to resist the devil. That's step, num- step number one to resisting the devil. James says in verse 7, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, this word devil in Greek, it's translo- translated, it comes from Diablo, and it, it, it's, it, he's not actually speaking of just the main devil, like Satan, the, the one figure of all evil. And there, he's kind of referring to that, but it's more extensive than that. He's not just saying resist Satan. He's saying resist the, the godless way of living. Resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you remember in James chapter 3 last week, um, let's look at it. Look up to James chapter 3, verse 15. He says, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what James is getting at here. It's all of this godless way of living. If you remember in James chapter 1, look at it with me, verse 27. James says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is what it means to resist the devil. Our resistance, remember this church family, your resistance, there's things in this world to resist, to be pushed back against, to be fought against, but it's not your seen neighbors. 
It's your unseen enemy. Christians aren't to resist other human beings. We are to resist the spiritual forces of evil that are wreaking havoc on this world and undermining the authority and the rule and the reign of Christ. Ephesians chapter 6 says we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and authorities that rule in the heavenly places or the unseen realm, the unseen places. And so how we de-escalate situations, how we combat conflict, is to submit to Christ and to resist the devil. The devil. The demonic spiritual forces of evil, not other human beings created in God's image and likeness. And I love this promise in verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's a promise from Scripture. Anchor yourself to promises from God that as I submit myself to God, as I humble myself before God and submit myself to Christ, that is an act of resisting the devil. And as I resist the devil, he will flee from me. What an incredible thing. Let's keep moving to number four, five, and six. And I'm going to put all these together in verse eight. James says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James just tells us, this is, this is how we deal with conflict. This is how we de-escalate. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Not to your podcast. I'm not saying don't listen to your podcast, but have, have you spent time drawing near to God, saying, God, what do you think about this? God, what are you doing in my own heart? God, what passions are at war within me? God, I'm drawing near to you. I want to hear from you. I want your mind. I want your perspective. I want your heart. I want your compassion. Or do you draw near to the pastor that you listen to? Do you draw near to the blog posts that you, that you prefer? Do you draw near to the news source that you, that you prefer? When we are in conflict, the way to deal with conflict is to assess ourselves, to allow God to show us the passions at war within us, to remember our status, to submit to Christ, to resist the devil, and then to draw near to God. And as we draw near to God, he, he gives us these other commands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Just keep away from sinful actions. Sometimes as Christians, we, 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 we tend to become victims of our own fleshly desires. Like, sometimes we almost teach and preach and disciple in a way where, where it seems like we are victims to our flesh. Like, ah, oh, I just did it again. I have no power. And so you need to remember, you have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, but then also, just as a human being, you actually are responsible for your own decisions. You're not a victim of your flesh. You have control over your flesh. And James is saying, cleanse your hands. Stop doing sinful things. Stop participating in what you know is wrong. Don't say, oh, I have no control. I, I looked at it again. I clicked on it again. Or I, I, I said this again. Or I said that again. Or I, I, I spent my money this way again. Or I spent my money that way again. I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. God's convicted me. God's convicted of me. But I just can't do anything about it. James is saying, Cleanse your hands. Don't become a victim of your fleshly desires. Just stop doing what's wrong. And if you need help, get help. Admit that you're helpless to somebody. 
and get some help. Tied to drawing near to God is purifying our hearts. And, and again, this is why I put these all in communal language. Cleanse our hands. I, I, I went back and forth. I had this thing typed up a bunch. I had it cleanse your hands, purify your heart, so that you could take the, the ownership and the responsibility of that. But I'm just convinced that that's not what James has in mind, and that's not what the scriptures have in mind. It's not you and Jesus figuring out, you trying to figure out, how do I cleanse my hands? How do I stop doing what I know is wrong? How do I purify my heart? It's us together. It's you in community. It's you telling trusted people, you know what, this is an area of temptation for me. This is an area of weakness for me. This is an area that I feel like I have no control or power. Would you help me? I don't want to become a victim of my flesh. I don't want to become a victim of my sinful impulses. So would you help me cleanse my hands? Would you help me stop doing this thing? Purify our hearts, James calls us. And just keep away from sinful thoughts. Don't let your heart and your mind dwell on things that are impure. And again, tell somebody, purity is a community project. Purify our hearts. Make us clean, O Lord. And here's why these, I think James ties all three of these together so powerfully. Draw near to God, cleanse our, cleanse our hands, and purify our hearts because the reality is we become what we're around. Right? We become what we're around. So as we draw near to God, our hands will become more clean. As we draw near to God, our hearts will become more pure. Now here's the gospel. Let's not separate it from the gospel. You have been made pure by Jesus' blood on the cross. You have been cleansed. You have been made pure. If you are in Jesus Christ, God sees you that way already right now as you are. But James is calling us to grow in that. And we de-escalate conflict by growing in that, by drawing near to God. We become what we're around. So if you listen to Fox News all the time, you start to sound like a Fox News person. If you listen to CNN all the time, you start to sound like a CNN person. If you're reading one blog on one particular perspective or one theological frame of mind, you're going to start to become like that. If you're around things that, that taint your hands and your heart, you're going to feel dirtier. You're not going to feel the purity of God. And so James says, draw near to God. As we draw near to God, our hands and our hearts will become more clean. As we do that, we continue on. Next verse, verse 9. Doesn't get any doesn't get any more exciting or encouraging or uplifting. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's the, here's the reality with the Bible. And one of the things that I love in the Christian life is we're always living in tension. Right? The Bible calls us to rejoice and to sing, to be merry, that we are overcomers, but it also calls us, right here, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And so one of the ways that we de-escalate conflict is by lamenting and repenting our own sin. Not by pointing out the sin of others, or the failures of others, or the faults of others, but by saying, I, I have wronged people. I have wronged God. 
I have passions at war in my own soul that distances me from other people, that, that judges other people. I am guilty of trying to take the speck out of their own eye before I remove the log from my own. And, and, and I'm guilty. And so when we become aware of that, when we admit that we need help, what we ought to do, as James says, is to be wretched and mourn and weep. This word mourn, it can be translated to lament. Means we agonize over the pain that our sin has caused. That when we're in conflict, that we own our side of the conflict and we agonize over what we have done, not over what others have done to us. Lament and repent our own sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then this ties into the next one, to humble ourselves. And again, he's already told us about humility a couple verses before, but now he reiterates it. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There is a way that we can humble ourselves. I mean, not ultimately this is a spiritual gift, a supernatural gift from God. All of this is. But there are actions that we can do to help put ourselves in line with what God wants. Humble yourselves. Honestly, the physical act of kneeling, kneeling in your prayer time before God, is a really good way to humble yourself, to be reminded that I'm, I'm nothing special. I watched a TED Talks a while ago about how to go into an interview. You're supposed to feel like powerful and in control of the interview. You're supposed to control the interview and you want to go in with confidence, right, if you're trying to get a job. And so posturing yourself, they, they talked about different ways to sit in the job interview and different tactics to do before you go into the job interview, like look in the mirror and, and do this, like stretch yourself up, make yourself big, right? Like you, you start to feel more confident, more assured. Yeah, I got this. I can do this. It's the way of the world. It's a way of puffing yourself up. I'm not saying that you shouldn't necessarily do that in a job interview. You should probably walk into a job interview feeling competent that you can do the job. But this is the Christian way to deal with ourselves, is to humble ourselves. It's not to stand before God like, I've got a lot to offer you, buddy. You're lucky to have me on your team. This church is going to do really good once I start preaching. I'll straighten this place up. No. No, it's, it's this God. I'm broken. I have these internal passions and these desires at war within me. I have mixed motives. I want things from other people. Other people want things from me and I don't want to give it to them or maybe I do want to give it to them for the wrong things and the wrong reasons. God, I need you. I come to you humbly. And even as I kneel, I'm feeling a sense of pride in that because I'm doing the right thing. Right? But physically coming before God and dropping to your knee or maybe giving your stuff away. Maybe that's a way to humble yourself, to give away things. To give away enough of your paycheck that you can't buy all the things that you would want. Maybe it's shutting your mouth and listening to what others have to say and really considering their, pers- their perspective, their opinion, their experiences. Here's another way that we humble ourselves. By gathering to sing. 
by gathering to listen. I listen to a couple sermons a week because I get to do all the talking when we gather, mostly, right? That's not good for my soul. And so I need to listen to others. I need to, I need to humble myself and listen. This is such a humble act for you right now. Thank you, church, for sitting here and listening to the Word of God. That is a way that you humble yourself. Taking communion, that's an act of humility. It's a sign that we need somebody else to do something for us. We need Jesus, the perfect righteousness, to do something for us on our behalf, in our place, to do something that we're not capable of doing on our own. And then lastly, this is the last way that we de-escalate. Whoops. It's to hold our tongues and our judgments. Verse 11 and 12, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And isn't that what we tend to do when we're in conflicts? Tend to point out the flaws in other people? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James uses this, uses these, this language of brother, brother and sister. Those are, those are brothers and sisters in the faith. Who are you to judge other Christians? And neighbor, in verse 12, that's anybody, not necessarily a believer. And your role is not to judge other people. Your role is to hold your tongue. Remember in James chapter 3, Mike Gunderson preached on this a few weeks ago. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, a great passage about the power of the tongue. The tongue can be used to build people up or tear people down. James is saying we de-escalate by holding our tongue and our judgments. And again, this is nothing new. James is taking this directly from Jesus, who has taught about this in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to jump back to verses 5 and 6 as we transition to communion. And James reminds us, he says, Or do you not suppose that it is of no purpose when the scriptures say, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for me. God is jealous for us, his bride. He doesn't just let us go in our adultery, in our sin, in our conflict, in our failure. He chases us. He zealously searches for us, says, and he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this morning, I want to invite you to kneel with me as we take communion. I'm going to call the worship team back up, and they're going to lead us into some response. But I want to invite you, there's a communion packet in the pew in front of you, and if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to, to spend time this week acknowledging that, that sin festers within you, that in your own flesh that you contribute, that, that, that your conflicts and your quarrels originate because of the passions that are at war within you. Spend some time allowing, allowing God to identify that for you and then work on de-escalating it. And I want to work on de-escalating it right now as a church community by taking a knee. Remember, one of the ways that we de-escalate is to humble ourselves before God. And so take the communion packet Take the communion packet and let's take this together. Matthew chapter 28 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread 
And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. Go ahead and pull the wafer out of the top container. Jesus gives this to us as a reminder. We're kneeling in a sign of humility and we're receiving from him because we are a humble people who need a holy God. And Jesus broke it. Go ahead and break that wafer. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's eat together. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Go ahead and open up your cup. And Jesus says, drink of this, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. May you humble us as we exalt you.